Thanks, Luke. Good morning, Conduit. How are you? Good. If, if we haven't met, um, I'm glad you're here. My name is Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Conduit. And like Pastor Luke had already said, whether it's your first time or your hundredth time, we have been praying for you. Uh, we pray in anticipation for everyone that would be here and then everyone that will be here in the future as well. Um, and would also reiterate, what you see up here is 1,000 1, bags, which is the goal for this year. Okay. Last year, I think in 500 bags, it's 24, almost 2,500 people that were fed by that. And so while the image is the number of bags, right, Every bag is connected to a family. Every family is made up of people. Right? Every person has a face. Right? And every, every person, um, intimately known by God, loved by God, having value and worth in the eyes of their Heavenly Father. And so, knowing nothing else about who our community is or who families around um, the region are, that means they have value to us. Uh, and that means that anything and everything that we can do to love and to serve and to bless them, not just during the holiday seasons, but anytime, is an opportunity that we will take. All right. So if you need to see these cards, not simply as cards with a little bag picture on it, but as faces or as families, I would encourage you to do that as well. Every week, we will we will update the number of bags that are on that by pulling down cards as we get closer to help you give a good visual representation. And would remind you as well that we are partnering with Bemis Point, United Methodist Church, and so we'll be counting their bags as well. But listen, y'all, it's not a competition, okay? It's not a competition. But if it were going to be a competition, <laughs> all right, if it were going to be a competition, um, second place is the first loser, and that will not be us, okay? <laughs> so I'm counting on you, right? Counting on you. Okay. Um, last week, we started a series in, uh, called Disciple. Uh, talking about what it means to be a disciple. And last week, rooting the work of discipleship in, in the church, right? At, and, and it being the primary task of the Christian church. And I'm not talking about the organization of the Christian church, like the four walls and the roof and the hierarchy and the structure and all of that. But, but, but I'm talking about the gathered community, the called out community of God. The, those who have expressed and professed faith in Jesus Christ and then are become part of the body of Jesus, the primary task of those who follow Jesus, who are a part of that believing community, is to receive and act upon those famous last words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I have commanded you, baptizing them, 
and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus promised those who follow him, his disciples in that moment, his eternal presence in the process of going and making disciples. It is the primary task that is the foundation upon which everything else that we do is built. And we left off last week saying, okay, if disciple-making is the primary task of the church, then it begs the question, though, what is a disciple? If we are going to go out and make disciples, then we better know what disciples are, or what is the, like, what is our working definition, right? So, of course, we could sit down and argue in theological terms, definitions all day long. That's not the point or the purpose of this, right? For our purposes and our point here and the way that conduit, we have, we have like believed discipleship to be about, this is our working definition of what it means to be a disciple. Okay. A disciple is someone who is being transformed into someone that lives like Jesus, loves like Jesus, and serves like Jesus. So if you think a little bit about like the disciples that we all know, Right, And when you think about what it means to be a disciple, I think most people's mind automatically goes to, well, yeah, Jesus had 12 disciples, and he had three really close ones, and he had one that uh, betrayed him, and then he had a big wider circle of people that followed him as well. Um, and, and so we, we tend to think about those disciples, but we often, like, I don't know if you do or not, I do, like, like what was their life like before Jesus? Because certainly you can see as they, as they interact and follow with Jesus, as they see the things that he did, if they, they experience the things that Jesus experienced there in his life, there was certainly this point in their life before they met Jesus. And I wonder if they would reflect back on their pre-Jesus life and think, wow, like the journey that we have walked from that moment that Jesus called us by the shore when we are fishing and we dropped everything and then we went and we began to follow him and look at, I was that person then and I'm this person now. I'm certain that there, they had moments like that. What's sometimes encouraging to me, <laughs> um, because life walking with Jesus can be discouraging, is that, um, is that I'm certain that the disciples saw the transformative progress of the work of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life in the in the midst of that three years, right? And yet you and I look at the uh, accounts of the Gospels and we're like, man, these guys are a bunch of doofuses, right? Like they're certainly not firing on all eight cylinders, right? They're, they're doubting all of the time. They're asking Jesus silly questions, right? They're not really getting the job done, all right? Um, when, when Jesus is arrested, that hour where, like, you want a bunch of really good friends, what do they all do? They scatter, right, and hide. One of them denies knowing him. The other flat out betrays him, right? And so we're like, wow, like, if these guys were disciples, either they were really bad examples or... I just have a messed up version or messed up understanding of what a disciple really is. As someone who has 100% spiritually arrived, 
needs no more transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Is a person that is held up as the ultimate example of just less than Jesus incarnate themselves, right? I'm telling you right now, that is not what a disciple is, either scripturally or even practically. What it means to follow Jesus is often a lot more complicated than our, like, the perfect notion of what it means to be a Jesus follower has been defined as in the world. And so one of, I think, one of my jobs and one of my, like, passions and what I'm, I'm hoping becomes one of yours is not just for you to gain, to gain increased clarity about what it means to follow and be discipled to, to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, to be a disciple, but also that we would live and love and serve in such a way that the outside world would have a better understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. That an unbelieving world would have a better understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Because if there's, if there's one criticism, right, that, that Christians get from an unbelieving, unprofessing world, it would be what? They're a bunch of hypocrites, right? They say one thing and they do another thing. Or their lives aren't perfect. And what I want to say every single time that accusation is made is like, exactly. Exactly. Like, I'm so with you. Yes. Like, my heart is turned towards a, a desire to follow Jesus. Yes, I am not perfect. Far from it. Paul, the Apostle Paul himself said what? Right? I am the chief of all sinners. And so developing an understanding of what it means for you and I to truly follow Jesus is important and critical in our discipleship towards him. See, the disciples in their, their pre-disciple life had all kinds of manner, like I'm sure had all manner of like, um, I, they had their, the, like living for their own purposes, right? Living for number one. Just got to catch enough fish to make sure that I am like, Providing for my family and providing for myself. I'm going my own direction. I have my own goals, thinking primarily of themselves, likely. Maybe not totally grasping the eternal realities of life and thinking beyond themselves rather than just thinking in this moment. But they committed themselves in a moment where Jesus called out to them. They committed themselves by faith to the process and faith to the person, to Jesus, and it would be an understatement of the century to say the whole trajectory of their life changed. When they said yes to following Jesus, the whole trajectory of their life changed. In a word, they were transformed. And everything else was transformed behind them. Transformation really is the key and critical, like, post-decision of following Jesus, like we're assuming a decision to follow Jesus. We're assuming that you've said yes to following Jesus. You are expressing faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But now becomes now, okay, well, what about transformation? If discipleship to Jesus is about the consistent transformation to live, love, and serve like him, then what does it mean for me to be transformed? What is Transformation. We have four things that I'm going to talk about transformation this morning. 
some things that it's not and some things that it is. Number one, transformation is the continual and, con- and consistent surrender of myself, the repentance of my sin, and the active embracing of the life of God in me. What does it mean to be transformed? It means that consistently and continually, I must surrender myself, right? Just like the disciples did, my own desires, my own goals, my own like dreams, my own understandings about um, both future and current reality, right? And I, were a repentance of my sin, a walking away of the life of sin, and an active embracing of the life of God in me. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, like talked pretty extensively about this type of like um, understanding of transformation, going from a life of sin and death to a life of embracing what Christ has done in me by faith. One small example, Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at very briefly here. Now we could read all of Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 and get a, like a full kind of theological idea of what Paul, uh, or what Scripture talks about in Transformation. But we'll just be like in the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. What does it mean to be transformed? Well, transformation is the continual and consistent surrender of myself, the repentance of my sin, and the active embracing of the life of God in me. So Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul was striking out at the argument right? The kind of hypothetical, theoretical argument that says, well, hey, since God's grace is offered freely and extensively to me through faith in Jesus Christ, then I guess it doesn't really matter what the conduct of my life actually is, right? Because I could just trust fall back into the grace of God. That's an untransformed life, is what Paul is going to say. It's like, that's not discipleship to Jesus, that's not living and embracing faith in Jesus, right? That's some, that's some twisted idea of what it means to follow Jesus, that I, just, that, I, that I just claim faith in Jesus Christ and therefore go on living however I want afterwards, completely untransformed, like it doesn't matter or like God doesn't see it. And what Paul says here is like, what, should we just go on sinning because we have grace? It was like, who are you guys kidding? By no means. What does he say here in verse 2? We have died. We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know, he says, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is why, in, in, this is why we talk about this very passage when we baptize people, right? Because we put them under the water as if we are laying them in the grave, right? And through the cleansing waters of baptism and the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit 
and the expressed faith in Jesus Christ when we bring them up out of the water, we are saying just as Christ was laid in the grave, right, and then resurrected to new life, so also are you laid in the grave. The life of sin is laid in the grave in the waters of baptism, and then you are brought to newness of life up out of the water. Verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to it. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. In the same way, verse 11, listen, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Sounds like a lot like surrender to me, right? As those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. In short, Paul Paul lays it out. Hey, look, listen, you have died to sin by faith in Jesus Christ. You have died to it. Sin is no longer your master. It no longer has control over you. In verse 2, just as Jesus was raised to new life, so are you. You have been raised to new life. And so we must continue to make the choice to live into the identity that God has given to us in Jesus Christ to be alive to the power of Christ in us. It becomes not just like this, oh Lord, transform and save me and now I shall go living my life again without any transformative work of you in my life right no you you have showed right that 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 sin has not been crucified in your life it may have been kicked and punched a little bit and limps around once a, once, once in a while but it is still alive and well now, how does this manifest in you and I? This is an important reality and one that takes some like I want to say it takes some faith to like see and believe. Because we are fantastic, right? We are fantastic at this is gonna may sound weird, at over spiritualizing things. And over-spiritualizing everything. Because sometimes, right, like, sometimes like, oh, God, 
Why is this happening to me? And I just want to yell, because you make dumb decisions, and these are the consequences of the decisions that you make. Hello, right? You don't need to be a theologian to figure some of this stuff out. Sometimes it's just as clear as that, right? But, but what is and what isn't transformation? Well, transformation is the continual and consistent surrender of myself, the repentance of my sin, and the embracing of the life of God in me that he wants me to have, right? Then we're also going to say something that transformation is not. Transformation is not just spiritual. Because you and I are not just spiritual. You are not just spiritual. And therefore, you only need God to transform the content of your soul. Right? Like he just needs to save and transform, right, this inner part of you that can't be seen and that someday will be united with him in heaven. This is not the way that Scripture defines who you and I are in the very basis of the creation account, right? We'll get to that in a moment. But all throughout Scripture, we see this reality that you and I are not just spiritual beings that have this like robot body that someday we will escape from in salvation, right? Actually, what Scripture describes is that like God created this body. He called it good. It's our fault. It's bad. And one day he will resurrect it and glorify it. That it's not a sitting on a clouds in some kind of ghostly spiritual existence that we are hoping for and waiting for into eternity. But it's an incarnated, touch, taste, see, and smell type of existence where God brings everything that was broken and makes it whole and new again, including your body. And not just the tangible part of my body that I can touch, right? That you can see but also the part of my body that exists within like my mind, right? My thoughts, my affections, my desires, my habits, good, bad, and ugly, right? That God is working to transform those as well. That he sees that we have this dynamic of not just being spiritual, but we also have a mind, our cognitive life, our thoughts that produce action, our mental capacities and capabilities that we have a body, our, our physical health, our wellness, our, our, our drives, our passions, our, our desires. And then certainly we have this, this spirit side, right? This life of God that has been breathed into us, this, this connection with the Holy Spirit of God. You see, what we often do, and this is not a new thing, okay? This was happening all the way back into the first few centuries of Christian belief, is that there was this compartmentalization of the body 
and the spirit. The body is bad. God's saving and has redeemed my spirit. This is a heresy. This is not, not even close to being biblical. And the practical reality of that compartmentalization is that it leaves us wondering why we're walking with Jesus by faith and we have asked, we have asked the Heavenly Father, like, like, Lord, by faith in Jesus Christ, transform, like, save my spirit, Lord, save me for eternity. And we're thinking in some kind of, like, like disembodied type of spirituality and transformation that God is going to offer to us. And then it leaves us wondering why, as we walk by, with Jesus by faith, that our, our desires and our drives and our passions and our affections and our relationships remain broken, remain tattered, remain unaffected by the same healing power of the gospel that has touched just that spiritual side of me. We wonder why life still remains an absolute mess. It's because either consciously or subconsciously we have said, hey, this is important, but this really isn't. My mental health really isn't truly important because God has already saved the important part. My physical health really isn't important because God has already saved the more important spiritual part, right? No, they're all important because guess what? They were all created by him. You didn't create any of you, right? And anything that God has created, he has declared it created as good, right? And so... All of it is good, and all of it is being transformed through the power of the gospel. Now consider some of the ways that Scripture has talked about the non-compartmentalized wholeness of you. Right, first and foremost is just in the creation account, right? Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. So that God was forming the man out of the dust of the ground, right? He formed the physical like shape and physique of the man, right? And then in an, like in this super intentional, slow down moment, this is incredible. All throughout the creation account, God, God is creating everything, right? From nothing comes everything. And everything that's magnificent in the world, we see that God creates how? Spoke. Like sun. Like light darkness and like these like all, the, the entirety of the universe comes into existence by virtue of the words of his mouth and then it's like it gets to this point in the creation account where it's like God slams on the brake of just speaking things into existence and now he's taking his time to form the shape of the man out of the ground and not only is he taking his time but he's not he, he's not okay with just speaking it into existence, that you get this image of him kneeling down next to this physique and literally breathing his very life into it. To say that my physical body is unimportant, right? And the way that I take care of it, and the way that I view it, and the way that I treat it, or the way that I treat other people's bodies, 
is somehow disconnected or compartmentalized away from this salvific faith that my soul or my spirit has exist has experienced is absolute garbage it's not it has no place in our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus well, a few scriptures here that show also that throughout the new testament like that new testament writers believed in the didn't believe in the compartmentalizing of like this part's more important than this part is more important than this part and more important than this part of you. For instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. We have it up here on the screen for you. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and your soul and your body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. That's the Apostle Paul that wrote that, of course. Other similar places, Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Paul says something similar. And we believers, we also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have this kind of famous verse where like, well, God really only cares about the state of my soul. Actually, God also wants your mind to be transformed. As Paul says here, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all he has done for you, let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is, this truly is the way to worship. And then verse 2, Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And then finally, if that wasn't enough, and we needed to hear once more from the goat of all goats, Jesus himself... Right? Says this. Matthew chapter 22. Hearing that Jesus was silenced, had silenced the Sadducees and Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with that spiritual side of you that he has saved. Right? Love the Lord with your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus understood. Paul communicated. God exemplified in in the creation account itself that we are not compartmentalized human beings. That we are complex. There are many parts to us. And guess what? and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to transform all of them. Not just my soul. Not just my body. Not just my mind. But all of it. Because it's all connected. Right? If you need any, any further evidence that it's all connected, um, ask me 
how pastoral and how emotionally sensitive I am when I don't eat for like eight hours, right? You get hangry, right? Like gentleness goes out the window, right? Like just get me something to eat and then we can talk. My wife can testify, right? Okay, number three. Transformation is not. Transformation is not magic. Transformation is not magic. We must work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to pursue newness of life. We make two mistakes, okay? The first mistake is that we think it's magic, right? And we say, Jesus, please save me. And then we don't pursue newness of life, right? And then we, and then we wonder why um, there is no transformation within us. And then who do we blame, right? This, this stuff, is, stuff is just like hocus pocus, superstitious. Life in Jesus doesn't really make any difference whatsoever because I asked him to change me and he didn't. Okay? So we make first mistake thinking that, like, it's just magic and happens all without any interaction whatsoever. The other mistake is what happens on the other side of the spectrum is where we are trying to, like, will ourselves to more closely follow Jesus in such an extreme way, right, that we think that it has everything to do with us just trying harder, being nicer, being more kind, doing more good things than we are bad things, and then not allowing at all, not asking, not pursuing the Holy Spirit's work to transform the inner parts of us. Listen, transformation is cooperation with what the Holy Spirit desires to do in your life. You must be willing to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life in order to realize transformation. I know. I know it's all about, like, trust God and He will do it. I, I, I know that that's, like, it's been drilled into our heads, right? Like, there's grace, there's grace, there's grace, there's forgiveness. Agreed? Is there grace? Over in abundance, is there, for, is there forgiveness? Over in abundance, right? Does that mean, as Paul said, that because there is grace, just go on sinning. Don't actually live into the new life that Christ is calling you to. Absolutely not. Listen, you must understand that this is balance. That there is balance, both between the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your life and you, right, Pursuing um, increased faith, greater amounts of holiness, larger acts of love. Some scripture, okay? Second Peter chapter one, verse five. Second Peter chapter one. 
So uh, we should have backed up to First Peter chapter or First Peter or Second Peter. I'm sorry, chapter one, verse three. Right? He says, "His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness." Right? So God is doing His part. Right? His divine power is giving us everything that we need. For life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Jump down into verse 5. Peter then says, For this reason, make every effort. You know what it's like to make effort, right? It depends on you, right? Are you with me? If If you're awake, still say amen. Amen. Okay. You're with me, right? For... For this very reason, you must make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, kind godliness, and to that brotherly kindness, and that to that love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, they are nearsighted and blind and have forgotten that they have been cleansed from past sins. You mean there are things in my spiritual life that depend upon me? Yes, there are. Yes, there is an expectation that you would be pursuing. We'd be pursuing um, adding to your faith and to your goodness and to your knowledge and to your, and to your self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. That there is an expectation that we would be adding these things, making every effort to do so. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 13, he makes this really, um, it's really an encouraging verse. Um, You may have used it in your own development of faith. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Oh, jeez, thank goodness, right? But when you are tempted... He will also provide for who? You, a way out. So that you can stand up under it. Right? It's like God says, hey, like, here I am, right? We're cooperating together. No, no, no temptation. You're not going to be like overwhelmed by temptation that is like too spiritually strong for you. I'm... I'm, 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 I'm actually a guard. I'm a guardrail to that happening in your life. And, and listen, when temptation comes, I want you to see that I'm offering you a pathway out of it so that you're not helpless, you're not powerless in the midst of the growing reality of your faith. Interestingly enough, 
This has nothing to do with trials, okay? Difficult circumstances in your life. God is not saying, I, I'm not going to give you anything you can't handle. Nowhere in Scripture do we find that. In fact, more places we find that is like, hey, life is going to be so overwhelming that the only way to handle it is for you to surrender yourself to Him. Like, strictly about temptation, when Scripture is speaking about, like, more than you can handle, is only about temptation. God will not, God will not push you into, into sin by tempting you beyond your ability to see the way out and to take it if you want it. We must cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, willing Willingly pursuing different patterns of life. Not just the patterns that led us into our death. Number four. This is our last one for this morning. One more thing that transformation is. So transformation first is... The continual and consistent surrender of myself, repentance of my sin, the active embracing of the life of God in me. Transformation is not just spiritual because you are not just spiritual. Transformation is not magic. We must work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to pursue newness of life. Number four, transformation is a process, not a destination. Well, when will I know that I have been fully transformed when you get to heaven. That's when you will be fully transformed. See, this has actual practical realities for us as well because, right, you can say, well, if we're all about making disciples here, right, and, and being a disciple means that I have been transformed to live, love, and serve like Jesus then that must mean that those of us who have been Christians the longest or walking with Jesus the longest, we must have reached the magical destination by now. And so no longer must we actually, like, really have to be discipled to Jesus ourselves. Now, I have to engage in the work of making every effort to add to my faith, right? Because I've been fully transformed. Like, no, no, transformation is not a destination until heaven. Transformation is a process that you and I go for. We, we have not been transformed. We are being transformed. I could... I could name you 10 areas where I'm being transformed right now. My wife could name 20 areas where I'm being transformed right now, right? I am being in the process of being transformed. Paul, Paul referred to it as running the race, right? So, hey, man, I'm running this race. Philippians chapter 3, right? Verse 12. Let's go there. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says this. He calls the faith, the race often. He's like, not, he's like, not that I have already obtained all of this. The Apostle Paul, okay, who saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, who essentially started all of the churches in the New Testament that we read about, who gave his life for the cause of the gospel. 
Say, I, not that I've already obtained it or have been made perfect, but I press on. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me, forgetting the life of sin, right? Forgetting what is behind me and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm living into the life of Jesus. I am living into the newness of life that Jesus has offered to me. Just as Jesus was crucified, died, and was resurrected back to dead, from uh, back to life, so also my life of sin has been put to death, and I am now resurrected to new life, and I am pressing on towards that, forgetting what is behind and moving ahead. He says it here in Philippians. He says it also in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians in verse 3. Or chapter 3, I'm sorry. Verse 18. He said, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He said, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. The life of discipleship to Jesus is a life of transformation, where all of who you are your mind, right? Your thoughts, your affections, your emotions, your desires, your drives, your passions, your body, your health, your physical nature, your soul, your spirit, the, 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 into the life of God within you is being transformed to live, to love, and to serve like Jesus. And it does require your effort. It is not magic, and it does not mean perfection. It means an honest life of every day, continually and consistently surrendering myself to the life of Jesus within me, where I must forget what is behind and press on towards what is head. Life in Jesus Christ Only disciples can make disciples. We talk about this process, and Pastor Luke next week is going to talk about how, how, do we act, how can we actively per, pursue transformation in the context of a Christian community, a believing community. How are, where are disciples made? Right? And as, as we pursue those, like, we're starting to like get into the more like, okay, nitty gritty details. How here at Conduit and beyond 
can I partner with the Holy Spirit, like cooperate with the Holy Spirit's transformative work in my life? That's coming, right? But you and I, as we are walking with each other, right? Like hand in hand, arm in arm, arm around the shoulder, arm around the shoulder. Look, we are pursuing life in Jesus together. We must be in our own transformative process to be able to help others be in their transformative process. You must be a disciple in order to disciple others. Now listen, what you just heard is you must be very mature and a long way along in your faith in order to help others grow in their faith. That's what you heard. Okay? Reverse that. Right? Go back to what I just said and listen. It is a destination. It is not a process. Just thinking backwards, right? At least you're paying attention, right? You heard, I must be perfect. I must be mature. I must be way far down the road in my walk with Jesus in order to help this person, that person, that person, this person in their walk with Jesus. That is not the case. That is not what I said. That is not what Scripture says, right? We are all, each and every one of us, in the process of being transformed. There is no magic spectrum, right, that, that we are all placed upon. Right? You can be in discipleship of me, and I can be in discipleship of you, and we all together can agree that we are going to walk towards new life in Jesus, cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes the cooperating work of the Holy Spirit is really, really, really painful and hard. Because there, become, there, there, there is going to become moments, many moments, several moments, moments every single day, where if you are, if you are listening and open to the Holy Spirit cooperating in your transformative process, that a big old fat spotlight is going to be shown on some root of sin that he's trying to pluck out of your life. And it's going to become, there's going to come a moment where you're going to have to decide if you're going to continue to embrace the death that comes from that or if you're going to willingly repent of that and turn towards Jesus. There are, there are moments of definitive action that you must take if you desire to be transformed. If you want to wallow in the death that a sin life has brought and will continue to bring in your life, that's your decision, but God will not drag you kicking and screaming to a transformed life. He will fully cooperate and do more than his part with you. But make every effort to add to your faith. Transformation is real and it's essentially, it's the byproduct of what we have laid a whole foundation for life and ministry on here at Conduit, our number one core value, that Jesus is everything and the gospel changes it all. Right?
not just your spirit or your, the spiritual part of you, right? No, the gospel changes, changes it all. That, that, that when Jesus came to redeem, when Jesus came to make whole, when Jesus came to renew, when Jesus came to transform, he came to transform everything and everyone. And it is upon that that we build a ministry, essentially, of discipleship. As the team comes back, so back, as the team comes back up, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we desire the transforming, transformed life described in Scripture. A life where I'm not just transformed spiritually speaking, or, but where I have been transformed every nook and cranny of my existence. Every piece of me that you see, Lord, gets transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. My mind, my thoughts, my words, my desires, my passions, my habits, my hang-ups, my spirit, my soul, my mind, my body, everything that makes me who I am, Lord, that you would transform. Lord, and that I, and that we, in moments of deep, um, pain discouragement when we know that X Y Z needs to change but we're scared and we don't know how and we don't know what it's going to mean or we don't know how to do it Lord that you would wrap a community of people around us to walk with us transformative process we're forgetting what is behind us Lord we press on towards what is ahead Lord we trust you we trust you as you do in us that which you need